yeah, fuck around and find out. So I'm sorry, I'll stop yawning, I swear. I will. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Girls Talk Comics Sleepy Record Edition. I'm just kidding. Or am I? I guess you'll have to listen to find out. This is Erin, your master of mediocrity. And this is Jessica, your lieutenant of literature. Today is another creator spotlight. We've done artists, and then we did Rumiko Takahashi, who is an artist and a writer. And now today, we're just going to transition fully to writer with Erica Alexander. Some Heck people yeah. might recognize that name. She is an actress, a writer, a director, an activist, and a comic writer. One of her more well-known roles is Maxine Shaw from... So wait, you said she's an actor? Living Single. Yeah, she's an actress. Huh. Yeah, she's an actress. She was also in The Cosby Show. She does a lot of stuff. She's playing Linda Diggs, the mom for the Wu-Tang and American Saga TV series. She played Perinia in Black Lightning, uh, Serena in Bootstrapped. She was in Insecure. She was in Get Out, like I said before, in The Cosby Show. Pam Tucker, Cousin Pam. She is producing the movie John Lewis's Good Trouble documentary. And she's apparently done a lot of stuff with Hillary Clinton and did a lot of traveling and advocating for her. So she is known in AACP Image Award winning TV and film actress. So she's won some awards. Like she's known. Her career started in acting and i found this great interview with the root i believe where she was talking about how her career has been limited because she's a black woman now not the first black female actress to say that she won't be the last and in this interview she provided a really good explanation about how she's been limited by those stereotypes specifically or not even how but kind of an explanation as to why i feel like as a white woman i hear a lot of people say things about discrimination and prejudices and how they impact careers and i accept that that's reality i accept that that's the truth we talk about stereotyping leading to pretty discriminatory practices within hollywood and i just accept that she said the same thing, in essence, but I like how she said it, in the sense that she came out and was like, people do not have creativity about the roles of Black women in stories. Uh, when she started her career, certainly with Living Single, she was a comedian, or was kind of a comedian. She kind of talked about how she wasn't really a traditional comedian. Yet, at that time, funny, quote-unquote, Black women were also fat, and she wasn't, and still isn't a fat black woman and so was talking about the struggles of the people who are hiring her they didn't know what to do with her since she was funny and so playing maxine shaw in living single became this really pivotal role for her she implied it inspired her to kind of be the woman that she is today maybe not directly inspired but the woman she is today is closer to who Maxine was, who she played years ago in Living Single. So I thought that was really cool. Like, it, it just phrased that power structure in a different way for me, right? Like, it's not just discrimination and looking at somebody and go, you can't be anything more than whatever the stereotype says, but it's also a, I don't have that creativity to see you as anything else. For me, it was just another way of rephrasing it as throwing it back on the person who perpetuating the prejudice and how it's my responsibility as a white person to confront that. So that's why I thought that was really cool. And that stood out to me. I mean, that kind of brings to mind the... <laughs> this is actually about shadow and bone casting, because that's how I roll. I guess the conversation around shadow and bone is such that they did a really good job showing diversity in that show, as was originally supposed to be depicted in the book, I guess. I don't know. I haven't read the book. But they kind of juxtapose that against the Hunger Games whenever they, quote, made the little girl Rue black in the movies, which is really funny that they got very angry about that because, like, that district was, 
like explicitly described as dark skinned and actually the main character Katniss was described as olive skin so like of a of a more Mediterranean skin tone anyway they were talking about how writing structure is such that the default is white and the way that that portrays itself is because people's skin tone only ever gets described when they're black or Asian you know some type of not white Yeah, 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 as white being the default. And there was a mention of a book written by a black author who made it a point to only describe skin tone on white characters as a new default. I don't know. I thought that was a really cool that thing. And I, yeah. I want that to be something that you see more often, you know, where people decide mm-hmm. the default is not just white. Over and over again, doing analysis for this podcast and like just getting better at being critical of what I'm consuming I find myself really 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 enjoying the stuff that defaults to decency like the lumberjanes was a really great experience for me because it defaulted to decency and every time Mm -hmm. there's a new show out like She-Ra or like a Steven Universe or things like that where people are just enthralled by the default of decency of inclusivity of diversity that kind of thing is just relief, I think. And if I'm as relieved as I am by that, I can't even imagine how someone who is, you know, not the default skin tone would feel. And to be like further insulted by the fact that by my weight being, you know, like what is more socially considered, quote, attractive, I'm therefore not allowed to be funny, I'm supposed to be catty, or I'm supposed to be standoffish, or I'm supposed to be, you know, like, whatever the stereotype is, instead of allowing myself to just be who I am. I mean, I feel like that's really insulting and exhausting in a way that I, I... will never understand fully that seems like a lot i want to mention when it what it means when a man falls from the sky which is a collection of short speculative fiction stories by leslie arima arima a r i m a h great book i heard about it from lavar burton reads kind of i forgot which work he read or he interviewed her, or both. But I really love the concept, so I went out and bought the book. And one of the premises of the story, what it means when a man falls from the sky, is instead of global warming dislocating every country that's not white, as the narrative also often around global warming tries to be fearful of, right? Like, what happens when India floods? They're all going to move to the United States. What will that mean? You know, very scared of the dark-skinned outsider kind of bullshit. This one flipped it, where Europe had to move to India, to Africa, to Asia. And so instead of white bodies being the majority and holding all the finances and the security, brown bodies were in this book. So she describes one of the children as like eggshell white. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it just made me imagine and like something about his teeth and freckles. I forgot what it was, but it was very like unattractive in the same way that racist literature depicts non-white children. Right. And I, I laughed when I read it. Cause I just imagined this egghead ginger character with like big buck teeth. Cause I, believe that's kind of how she described him and I hate laughing at that imagery but knowing the motivation of the book I think she wanted kind of an uncomfortable reaction to it and I knew what reaction she wanted going in so it was really striking when that scene happened at the same time I just laughed at that image because like preteens do kind of look awkward no I am mostly (laughs) ginger I'm not I am pasty and I have strawberry blonde hair not quite a ginger, but quite a few people are like, you're a ginger because you have red hair. And I'm like, what? This is not red. It's a little bit of red. So no. But I guess maybe I laughed because it was like kind of describing me. I was like, yeah, that's what we look like. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there, there it's you like, win. Yeah, I do have eggshell white skin and I do kind of glow in the dark. You're right. This is true. It also sucks when you say it like that, but you know, whatever. Yeah, a lot of people kind of fall into that fallacy, and I know that's not what you're doing. I'm just 
Like, that makes me think of the fallacy where people are like, oh, yeah, you can do that to me all you want, you know? Like, yeah, okay, like, having one example does not the full impact make, right? Like, we are like, oh, right. yeah, and maybe we're uncomfortable, and maybe we giggle a little bit in that nervousness or in, like, the actual hilarity of seeing that description and being like, oh, that is how they look, or that is how people I know look, or how I look, or whatever. And it's funny because we're in a place of power, while we're having this anecdotal thing like thrown out it's true but, like yeah but there's just so much you know more to it than that but like at the same time I feel like it's a good practice I feel like it's a worthwhile thing and experiment and aspect of literature to change push for change right like as mm -hmm. as we've been going through the book club I've realized how new a lot of these things that we're liking in the recent literature are so all of the things that have really impacted me throughout my life of all of those things it's a really small part of the pie chart that is pushing for more inclusive language and how would that affect me if I actually did write how would yeah. that cripple me as I was trying to tell stories I don't know you know that I have a lot of sword yeah we, this is a topic that's sensitive because it's evocative right like right it's that's why it's hard and why people avoid the conversations because you do have a lot of feelings you struggle with guilt and acceptance and that kind of the stages of understanding and learning and growing and with that it's still a matter of life and death and very real and very permanent, like permeating a lot of areas of our lives that people won't expect. I want to throw back to our Blue Sword episode. I remember some descriptions of Harry really focused on how she didn't look. She looked different than everybody else. And she was different because she was white. And they, in talking about her skin tone and how it darkened, it was a celebration of her looking like everybody else. So I'm not entirely sure if that is the intent of that imagery. It's not. It's more about her finding a place and a home and becoming part of the peoples she was always meant to be part of. But I remember that the description of skin color did focus on like how the fairness and the whiteness of the invasive government was not suitable for the desert. <laughs> like it was very much like, <laughs> y'all are like really white. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah, it was very minimal. But the characters who yeah. stood out were white characters. And I, re I remember that because even with Luth, the soothsayer, he was blue eyed and white. I don't remember if he was blonde, but he stood he stood out for that difference. And unfortunately with him, there was a bit of that kind of soothsayer superiority thing. But like, we're not deep diving that right now. We need to get back to Erica Alexander, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> we were talking about her actress work. Yes. So the default of white skin color does tie into some of her motivation for writing Concrete Park. I guess she and Tony were trying to sell a story, like for a series. And they were talking to a producer who she has respectfully not named, though he's apparently not in the role that he was at the time. And he told her that he isn't going to do sci-fi depicting black people because black people don't see themselves in sci-fi, which is fucking untrue and stupid. But he based it solely on the fact that one member of a black audience who was test viewing a movie mentioned something about not understanding how a black guy got to Mars. So instead of being like, oh, obviously we didn't explain this character's backstory or we didn't give any motivation to this character or whatever, the guy was like, obviously black people don't get sci-fi. Oh, and I'm God. like, the fuck? So like, obviously I'm white. I do not know the history of black readers with sci-fi, but speculative fiction sci-fi fantasy is filled with black writers black creatives and black characters what the, the wrong takeaway i feel like, like that's the opposite of what they should have taken yeah, away from like, that you know like that is exactly the opposite so that that's where that that's where that story is is an example of racism <laughs> just yeah. to listeners out there um if you hear one person say one thing regarding a topic and then extrapolate that to the entire population of people who reflect that person's demographics that is a prejudice just gonna throw that out there <laughs> anyway so after they had that conversation and I, I would like to throw out again uh the blurred girl is where i got this information because she recently interviewed erica alexander and it was great it was 
also very short. So they talked Concrete Park, they talked her current career, and they also talked some things I'm going to mention in a second. But Tony apparently was like, screw this guy, I'm going to go learn how to draw comics. <laughs> Went and drew comics. They pitched it to Dark Horse, and Dark Horse was like, yeah, let's go. So it got picked up by Dark Horse, it was published all through Dark Horse, Forbes, in 2014 was like this is the best graphic novel and you know concrete park became a series with now two volumes one of the things i do want to talk about in regards to erica alexander which is influencing my opinion about this topic this heated debate <laughs> nfts all right. Oh, so no. you were like, I don't know what that means. I, so. I don't know what that means. All I know is bad. NFT stands for non-fungible token. So to understand what a non-fungible token is, you have to understand what a fungible token is. A fungible token is things like cash. It has an equitable value to other things that are similar to it and can be exchanged for goods. So like a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. A non-fungible mm -hmm. token is... Something specifically that's digital and pretty much is separate because it's not equal to other NFTs just because they are also NFTs. Like they can be sold at different values based okay. on demand. So the thing about non-fungible tokens is that they are coded kind of like how Bitcoin is coded. This is where my knowledge gets a little hazy. Like they're built around the same blockchain thing. I don't get it. But like there's some additional coding stuff in there that like always will tie it to the creator. It also makes an artificial scarcity. So of course, I'm hearing this artificial scarcity thing personally, and I'm like, ah, capitalism. But then I'm also hearing this other thing about like tying it always to the creator means that any future sales of that NFT will keep continuing to give the creator some profit. So it does help artists, right? But at the same time, I'm also like big business. And it's like anything that exists in a capitalist society, I'm a little skeptical of it. The issue that people have is that the price of these NFTs is seemingly absurd. Like $70 million to buy something you can just find for free online sounds absurd to a lot of people. And I agree with that one. The other major issue is that there's massive energy consumption to create NFTs. It's like to create one can cost the same amount of electricity that can power a city in a year. It's just absurd, right? Oh, and wow. yeah, so I heard Erica Alexander was part of, she was the first member of a Black-owned company to do NFTs, specifically around the characters for Concrete Park. And I was like, ugh, do I want to do this episode? But she brought up some really good points about it. One... The idea that she can, she and Tony and the company can continue owning and getting profit off of that, she didn't talk on that too much, but that was a thought that came to me about kind of getting ownership for Black-owned works and continuing to keep ownership about it and almost keeping that money in Black communities still. So there was a little bit of there where I was like, okay, I like that as a idea because I think she's a major advocate for Black creators to get into the NFT world and kind of retain income for your work. There's a lot of history when it comes to black creators not getting their money. I won't deny that. I'm not going to pretend that doesn't happen. But then she also said that the technology that's around NFTs has existed for almost a decade. It's the same technology that's been going in for like Bitcoin and stuff. Like it's, it's not really built on new things. And I saw in my quick Google search Stuff that NFTs have like existed since 2014. They just started becoming incredibly popular in 2017 and I guess more accessible in 2021. So the reason people are upset about it is that because they just are hearing about it. And when she was talking about why they did it or the fact that they did it, she spent a lot more time justifying NFTs rather than explaining why which makes sense because it's so topical right now and so evocative of a subject. Mm -hmm. She's like, people do need to be talking about that energy demand because this might be a future of consuming and selling artwork. It might be. That's fine. We hoard art. <laughs> like, Why not 
move that over to a digital landscape. But we need to do it in a way that's more environmentally friendly and efficient in energy consumption. They exist. There's a lot of money around them. It's now on the developers to make it a better product. The NFTs aren't the problem. Like, I'm really glad that she said it. Like, that NFTs aren't the problem. It might not be a bad thing that I can commission an artist to give me a digital work as well as a printed piece. And frankly, I've commissioned people for digital pieces. It wouldn't not make sense for me to be the owner of that piece, right? So the concept is solid. The impact of the technology is not. And it kind of is swaying my opinion. The NFT is not the harm. How they're encrypted is the harmful way. And that's what we need to focus on, if that makes sense. I've heard the concerns brought up where people who have power do things without any restrictions. So, so, so you know, mm-hmm. this technology is a good example of that, something that's been around for a long time that only the rich or powerful or well-connected have access to. But when it becomes available, the people who actually get the bulk of the backlash are the people who don't have that power. So the new people who are using it who are just now getting their chance to be in on a piece of the pie, basically, who are trying to, you know, leverage themselves in a way that gives them more power or more control over their art, for instance. And then they end up getting the brunt of the attack, you know. So if we would have, instead of pointing out that, hey, this is a thing that's been around forever, leaned into, oh, she's against the environment because NFTs are bad, you know, that would have been an example of how racism sort of enforces even among quote-unquote liberal or green or you know conscientious discourses it gets pushed back onto minority Mm -hmm. groups like so I'm really glad that you were able to point that out as opposed to just explaining to me how terrible they are because I hear that happening a lot where people un self-consciously do this thing and then I've seen that a lot too with like women yes yeah, women create exactly. like creators and public fronts get attacked viciously for things, and I'm like, the fuck. So yeah, I'm really glad that the blurred girl addressed that. Karama is her name, and because I am not literate in the encryption process, I wasn't fully aware of what specifically about the NFTs was a problem, and it's the technology used to encrypt it because of whatever the developers have done. So now they just need to get. They need to get good, get good developers, yeah. make an eco-friendly capitalist future. This is the fucking Be better. fall of capitalism going on right now. Get good. Get good. Get good. Speculative fiction on the back of capitalism? I think not. Anyway. Uh- <laughs> Isn't that not what Concrete fun. Park is about, though? I, don't- I read the first volume of Concrete Park. I also feel like that's back to yeah. our roots a little bit. Reading entire series feels like a lot whenever we were originally just reading one volume at a time and talking about it. So kind of in that spirit of 100%. the original Girls Talk comic, I read the first volume thinking this will give me a good chunk. And who knew this was going to be our retro episode, our throwback. Yeah, it's our throwback. throwback, throwback comics. And it is kind of because I think these huh? were, they, they, this one's from 2014. 2013 Park? is when the series premiered, but 2014 okay. I- is probably when the volume dropped. So. so it is a bit of a trippy thing. It doesn't really give you the pitch until a couple of issues in. On the surface, it's about gang violence. And then as you get further into the literature, you know, the sci-fi aspect of it comes out. I didn't know it was sci-fi when I started reading it because I was just told to read it. And it gives you a map of scarcity, which is a funny play on words, by the way, but not so funny, <laughs> but like dark humor. It is funny, but it didn't register to me that this was maybe a different place (laughs) i was just thinking like this is a futuristic city like new detroit or something you know like in my head i was like all right scare city the la collapsed and it became its own fiefdom and you know whatever things like this have have been done before in in sci-fi so i was like all right fine and it said los angeles in the near future i was like all right cool scare city is like what it's gonna turn into you see this guy who's what's a non-asshole word for it I feel like gangbanger is an old asshole word, but I don't know. I don't know what. Yeah, that's an asshole word. Yeah, like I I don't know, like a a person who is involved in gangs, like 
what it like a gang, gang member? member there it is there it is thank you <laughs> i got there a member of a gang what but okay so the premise of the book is that a lot of people most people have turned to gangs as a manner of allying themselves with strength right like there's a huge food mm-hmm. shortage there's water shortages there's just there's shortages in everything so their people are afraid and they're banding together and that turns into gangs. And so there are a lot more gangs. There's a lot more involvement in gangs. And so this man is a gang member and he is trying to survive for his daughter. And so three pages in, his daughter is shot. Mm-hmm. So then he is arrested, which feels weird. He's walking down the street holding the hand of his daughter and then his daughter is shot and then the police arrest him and then he is sentenced and there's a tattoo on his face and I'm like all right I'm getting a lot of a lot of vibes here there's a lot of that's a lot of symbolism there but it's like right on his cheekbone like right in his face then he's put under you flip to a different person and so this whole thing is done in sort of vignettes it doesn't tell you where this person is but she's in bed with her lover whose name is Lena and they do kind of like caption cards, which it kind of feels a little bit like those kind of like old kitschy action things. Like, I don't know what the word is for what that is, but you know, like I don't the, know either. Bah, bah, bah. It's, it's a very kind of kitschy sort of feel in Dramatic. a movie. It really plays well into comics though. Like I was realizing as I was reading that I was like, this is a good for still frames. Like, it's not like, it's not like artificially stilled as you're going through something. It's like, everything's a still frame i don't know i had i liked it a lot more than i liked those other kind of like kind of like the the fancy title cards that we were talking about when we were talking about a uh, marie severin about how cute it is to have yeah, like the fraggle rock i was like mm-hmm. yeah like it like i really kind of liked it <laughs> and this i was like oh like yeah that feels very nostalgic and cool <laughs> I, d- I i get your point because i think of uh borderlands when they introduce villains in that video game mm-hmm. and it's like they just yeah. jump out of the room and it's like a big backsplash in their name and a, like a weird little fact about them and it's comedic in that scene yeah. because it's it's so odd nowadays but yes i do believe in comic books it adds quite a bit more to the story but in this it feels very much like more solemn because like nothing is nothing is funny in this mm-hmm. like this is not a funny comic but you know you're getting good information and it's kind of even though these are massive letters it's kind of an unobtrusive way for them to really establish a cast of characters really quickly i don't know it happens on the first page and you just sort of relegate it to like art information like you know it is words but it's more like art information kind of where you're getting your your context clues from it it's just a little bit more of a forced perspective you know <laughs> like like um like how they do in film whenever the film like makes you think that you're looking at a certain thing but really they're like forcing you to look at that thing yeah anyway um yeah. so this woman is in bed with her lover and then she's like on her way to go do a deal and like she obviously walks into a trap and then runs away she runs by a person who has another title card so you know he's important and that's that's another thing that was nice about it <laughs> is it was like pointing out who was going to be somebody you should pay attention to because the art for each face is very detailed and it's very detailed in a way that you get a lot of faces it's not necessarily important information for you to retain but it does give you a lot of diverse looking faces and they're all shades of brown and tan and latina you know like maybe polynesian maybe you know like a very very diverse skin tone flavor i don't think i saw a single like white body there was a uh, some somalia sisters who are in hijab. So it's okay. it's a very diverse type of background. They don't do a lot of cardboard cutout faces. That's a long way for me to explain that they good. do a very good job of giving you like a very inclusive type of background feeling. <laughs> anyway, so you have a shapeshifter, you have people who, you're starting to really start to get the feel of sci-fi here because you have people who are like tripping on something all the time. There's the lover that she was in bed with has like glowing blue eyes. So you're like wandering around and she's trying to get out of the problem area. And, and the whole time you're in Scarcity, 
which is where they tell you you are eventually after you wake up in the woman's bed with her. There's a voice going on in the background. This person's name is Chavez, and they're a, like, free radio type broadcaster, which is kind of a fun aspect to it. It feels very atmospheric. And then they're going on on this, like, we have to set aside our gang relations and all of this stuff because our future is here. Our future can be better if we band together type, you know, like, really motivating type everybody come together and we'll we'll work together for a brighter tomorrow type thing but like in an authentic way and not in that like work together we want you it's genuine rather than a garfield poster that says hang on it's yeah. friday <laughs> yeah exactly yeah teamwork it, makes it, a dream work it's, they, he chavez's radio station does things like grassroots. call out names yeah. of the recently de- deceased so it's small things like that that make it not a poster and make it more of a grassroots yeah. situation where you can tell this person is and, he, and it even points out his secret location as they're running by it not that he ever interacts with the main cast but that's a fun little like easter egg kind of thing to drop like he's in the back of this coffee shop the entire time these are like narrators saying the name over the top of a tv show instead of like the whole still frame thing but it's the still frame version of that okay so i think that's kind of yeah it's like a narrator saying chavez instead of like still frame explosions in the background chavez you know what i mean even though those are fun too <laughs> not everybody's interacting with each other but as you get further into the the volume people start to connect in that fun way where the wheels are turning and you're kind of watching everything in motion which as i'm reading this i was a little bit sad that there was only two volumes out and that they were really so long ago, because to me that means like like the likelihood of them starting up is less so, and it makes me sad because I was like, oh, they started this and they used the entire first volume basically as momentum towards something, you know, and then we only got one volume of what that momentum actually was, which is really sad. It kind of puts me in mind of like Bitch Planet, where you've got a lot of like this huge mechanism is rolling, and then you didn't ever really get a good payoff for that, even though you were really excited by the buildup because it was a really good buildup. And probably my favorite character in this first issue is presented when you see the first dad is on transport, and he's actually chained up right across from the guy who shot his daughter and thought he had shot him, and he's like, I'm gonna kill you, and he's like, no, you're gonna love me whenever we land, and, you know, they're having this, like, sass off as they're chained and they're they keep talking about like when i get off this bus and this woman's like you don't know where you're going you know she's got this very mystical feeling like that sometimes happens where it's like oh that bitch is crazy and she's got this very beautiful face and she's bald and i can't help it i love that the very like strong features and bald as a babe but she's also got three tattoos on her face with two of them crossed out so you're like oh man you know, instant validity to her character, right? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. you have more than one, so you, you're you a repeat offender, but she's also got this very, like, mystic, almost serenity to her. And <laughs> she's like, it's not my first time on this bus. I'm gonna get the hell out of here. I'm the only one that knows how to get off of, here, off of this bus. And, like, her spirits, I guess, like, three spirits that look like her sort of inhabit our main character, first character, and show him visions of some sort of force, like this vision of the future where he's leading people and they all have like paint on their faces, but it looks a little bit like a kanji. And uh, mm-hmm. they're fighting against some big alien rock type suit looking things that could be a uh, Doctor Who villain. They could be like like the Slitheen kind of, but like more mecha. Or um, it could be like an actual alien not just a suit. You also see him like having sex with the lady with the flower in her hair that we saw having sex with another lady and was getting into hijinks and then also holding her dead body while things are burning behind him and it's just all like boom 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 and she's like told you I was getting off this bus and then puts a pill in her mouth which is a bomb and she explodes and then the side of the bus explodes and then they're like oh fuck it's not a bus it's not a bus because it's a freaking spaceship with the hole in the side now just streaking over this like landscape and then you get luca you get luca's backstory and she was in the ice mines which they've mentioned a couple of times but i didn't really retain until she was explicitly shown in the the ice mines which is where it's like their supermax prison it's this new spacey supermax prison which is sort of like bitch planet in that like it's like 
they sent them to a different world. You know, like they made a whole different world to put people they don't like that don't like conform to what they want. And then she talks about how she got out of that life and hooked up with the M80, which you finally find out is the name of her gang. And then a shapeshifter character that was introduced earlier goes and gets her gang to go get her out of the ish shit she's kind of in as she's sort of like fast talking, trying to get out of like everybody's got a gun on her type situation. But of course her ladies get there to back her up and they're like a badass troop of women right and i'm like okay but they're all very different mm-hmm. they have got different personalities her girlfriend lena is just blue eyed doesn't talk every time she does talk it's like alien like words instead of real words and think the watchman the big blue guy you know what i mean that's kind of the vibe you're getting from lena out of her eyes she's Dr. a dark woman yeah whatever swinging dong is what i got when i was in high school like that's all i got out of that movie guys i was too young i didn't care (laughs) but you get introduced to the people in her you you get introduced to the people like that like some of the associating characters who want to be like you know people who are not really affiliated but who want protection like this monkfish this shape changer so you're like oh Mm -hmm. some of these people have been severely distorted by something there's something in this new planet land that is screwing with the human biology and then out of nowhere you see this big spaceship streak across the sky (laughs) and they're like oh scrap and everyone just drops everything they're doing hops into mad max style cars and just takes off into the desert after this fucking the you know spaceship crash flash over to the first guy he's the only one that survived the car crash. Oh, nope, just kidding. He's not the only one. The guy that killed his daughter is amputated and is like, kill me. And then he does the thing where he's like, no, you'll live. Because now it sucks for you to live as before it didn't. So now the thing that's bad is, which is what, really funny to me because we were just talking about this like last time <laughs> about how hardcore it can be when you don't kill someone and just make them live in suffering. And how it, make, it makes me think that it's funny that we only apply this to our vill- villains, but for some reason, we force our heroes to survive all the time, and then we as readers are just supposed to accept that it's a good thing. Kind of like I mentioned earlier, the Hunger Games. Like, why didn't they let her die a clean death anyway? Oh, it's bad when we do it to our villains, but it's good when the hero survives, no matter what they've survived. Why can't we give them clean dust too? Anyway. Glorification of military militaristic sacrifice through violence Mm. so are we getting close to the end this is a lot of stuff in this book this is a fast-paced volume in scene is the scrappers get there and luca the lady with the flower in her hair and her m80s are the first on the scene to the first protagonist guy and she's like, Spaceman, welcome to the big beach party. What brings you here? And he has just standing there. He's dropped the guy's like almost corpse, not quite corpse, on the ground. And he's got big ass tat on his back that says murder, death, kill. And that's the end scene. He got a vision not five minutes ago of boinking this lady. And then she's the first one to welcome him to, like, to the world. Like, hey, what's up? I appreciate the welcome to the beach party. <laughs> it's like the worst extremes. So this is a land of extremes. Where the people who are, quote, free-ish live in scarcity, where everything is scarce and everything is gangs, just like what they were left, they left behind at home when they got sent here. And on the other side is enslavement in icy frozen pits of mines. You don't know what they're mining. Obviously something like important, I guess. I don't know. It's on the same planet, but it's on different aspects. Like maybe it's like one is sun facing, the other is not. Oh, and there's two suns. So that probably explains why. Desert and you've got Iceland. Kind of like that scene in Chronicles of Riddick where at the Supermax Inferno land. Can't remember the name mm, of it. Mm-hmm, but it's, mm-hmm. but it's you know, it's got the same sort of stark so i'm assuming that's kind of what they're going for when it comes to the ecology of the planet it's got that like it's too close so it's ice but that it's not and then maybe there's some sort of fixed situation with the way the two suns orbit so that you know like scarcity is always a desert and the other side's always (sighs) i love sci-fi there's always some fun shit like that you can try to work out backwards (laughs) like world building is fun 100 percent. but yeah yeah. so this is a wild ride of a show and I appreciated how it kind of humanized a lot of the stuff. Like, it's obviously sci-fi. It's obviously, like, a big production that they're going into. But, you know, like, they did it in a very, like, on-the-grounds type 
way. Grassroots sort of like they focused on the human suffering aspect of it, even if humans is becoming kind of a loosey goosey term after the first issue. And it was a very diverse yeah. set of humans. And so like you never knew who you were supposed to focus on, which is a nice change of pace from some other pieces of literature where you're like, oh, there's the white guy. Obviously, he's our protagonist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or they like, you know, it wasn't a gimme. It was like, here's here's us explaining to you who the important people are. You won't be able to tell because they look like everybody else. And it's great. It's really great in that. But it's not something I noticed until afterward when we were talking about how defaultness. I'm like, oh, so this, yes. this comic does everything it can to not have a default. And didn't even notice. See, obviously it's not intrusive when you do things like that because I didn't even notice until we were think- talking about it. And in that context, yes, it absolutely has that. So 100%, I give that a, it doesn't fucking matter if, you know, we were to open up the gates, it wasn't going to ruin anything. You know what I mean? Like, I always hate that reactionary yeah. argument. It was like, oh, it's going to ruin everything if we do that. It's absolutely not. Like, you just accept it in media. You know, if it is something that is jumping out mm-hmm. at you and is appalling to you in a negative way, maybe that's a chance for you to look at your inherent biases. Yes. And I do want to say that that is really commendable to Erica and Tony's work because they were able to accurately, how do I, what's the word I want to use? Effectively. Clearly. That's the word I want to use. Yeah, yeah, effectively or clearly translate their morals into the book's art and writing and world building. You can tell when stuff is like kind of heavy handed or maybe misses the point due to whatever like that, you know, you need to add X, Y, Z to kind of cater to this other audience. And they were like, nope, here are, it sounds like they were like, we're looking at what the future could be. What do we want the speculative fiction? What does it mean for what this world will look like? And they just did it. I, I don't know how to wonder, say it other than that, but. It makes me wonder what the discourse was, like the main discourse in media was around 2013. Was there a lot of like concern and discourse about like gang violence back then? Was that something that was, like, one of the main topics? I think there might have been in the sense that that was still Obama presidency. And so Mm -hmm. racist ideology was definitely, I think, on the rise in media. Well, I mean, I just was thinking about when the new Judge Dredd came out. But that was a little earlier. Trayvon Martin was killed in February of 2012. Okay. So, George, that was... If I remember right, that wasn't yes. a huge topic of conversation in like the national discourse so much as it might have just been more of oh. a concern of their not not that not Trayvon Martin, but like gangs. You know, it wasn't like when I was in junior high and high school where it was like, oh, Detroit is destroying itself with gangs. You know what I mean? Like that was that was sort of like a big like media narrative that I remember back from the twenty four hour news cycle, whenever I paid attention to it. A lot of those big St. Louis marches were happening in 2013, though. There was the other gentleman who was killed at the time of a Black Lives Matter protest, right? And he had, like, mm-hmm. his hands up and he was shot by a cop. Ferguson. That happened in 2013, I believe. So gang violence might not have been, but I remember the word thug thrown around a lot in regards to uh... victims of police violence. So thug is the new gang banger, banger. in the media. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, and that's <laughs> terrible. Um, I was like my rural, my rural it, America it, show. <laughs> you know, yeah, things, things are so it's, prevalent it's, or so pervasive, you don't even realize how just twisted it is until you're like, yep. wait, what would be a res- more yeah. respectful word to use for that? Just gang member. Just to double back, Ferguson happened in 2014, but at that time, for the years that built up to it. And all the talk of the police brutality and that really becoming a more of a modern conversation, despite the fact that these protests and concerns happen every decade. If you look back, if you look back at race riots or like race police brutality protests, they happen every decade. So racial tension is very prominent because it's not going anywhere because we have the same wave of like, we care and then we do nothing and then it happens Uh, again. It's very cyclical. you know what? You know so, what? It was le- it was more it was more insidious than it was when I was in junior high and high school. In junior high and high school, it was like mm-hmm. gang violence. It was black on black violence by the time it be- by the time this book yeah. was released. But it was still the discourse. Yeah. Okay, God, it's hard yeah. to think back. 
it feels like it's been a century this it past is. year. So it's like, oh goodness, it, what it was is. it even a minute ago, let alone 2012, and, 2013. And it's also discouraging because we keep having the same conversations. And so yeah. it's like, what was it then? Because we're still talking about it now. Like our language mm-hmm. just changes, but it's still the same topic. You hear about gang violence, black on black crime, thugs. It's all the same. I think 80s new age conservative racist rhetoric, if not earlier, after the civil rights movement, it's it's the way you can be racist without being like explicitly racist. And that's why it's dangerous and insidious. And uh, mm-hmm. because when people talk about gangs and those communities, you can focus on the violence, which most white Americans will associate with black communities Detroit, as an example, and forget about white gangs that are inflicting human trafficking, drug trafficking, and violence across the Midwest and coastal Mm -hmm. areas as well. You think about that as a specifically Black problem, but instead of saying it in any kind of race-driven turn, you say it as a thug. And that's where it's insidious and problematic. And People who say that will also say, no, a thug is a thug. It could be white or black, but not think critically about the fact that they only think of Detroit or predominantly right. black areas. And so for listeners, be aware of that. And yeah, the language is different for predominantly white membership type gang. Yeah. Hell's system. Angels sells, Hell's Angels is considered like what, a non-fucking profit or something? Yeah. Like they have parades. You have- yeah and i mean like really even like if we're talking about it organized groups that enact violence or that are violent or you know like under the radar or or doing illegal acts you know like the kkk you know and it's really funny to me actually Mm -hmm. and i'm i'm not gonna focus on this but it's funny to me that the only time that they they kind of move to include you know like maybe wider uh mixtures of groups is like things like antifa whatever Whenever they're all of a sudden yeah. damaging sort of the structures that hold up this discrepancy, like this disparity, like the, then they're like, oh, the yeah, screen, but that yeah. is also, yeah, this, this is also a gang. That's the same. That's <laughs> yeah. the same. You're like, is it? But is it? Like, <laughs> I feel like. But it, it, yeah, it's. it's just part of being critical of what we read and how it's presented. And it, it makes it. I'm really glad that we sit and have these conversations because I try to explain this topic to people without any framing, without any context. And it gets, especially within the comics world, like there are a lot of people who know this or feel it, feel in their heart and belief system that they want to be an open community, that they want to not be discriminatory. They they want communities to mingle and celebrate the art of comic books. At the same time, the nature of the comics industry and comics consumption and some of the mass media is very uncritical of that and i can't really i'm not going to point my finger anywhere except at publishers i guess because you know there's very little profit margin in the comics world it's very poor industry when it comes to rates versus the amount of work whatever at the same time i think a lot of stories and a lot of language gets pushed through and is allowed Mm -hmm. to continue and yeah there is also an increasing amount of people who are being critical of that and are pushing against that, and many mainstream characters are clearly vocalizing against hateful ideologies. Uh, yeah. You see it; I see it a lot more in indie books, and I am seeing some animators move over to indie books and hitting on a lot of discriminatory, evocative topics and doing it in very concise ways uh the avatar the last airbender comics also do it but under the guise of the bender non-bender conversations and Mm -hmm. i thought they did it very concisely over two pages rather than having to explain it in the entire series but it so it, it very clearly shows the value of the author and i know people who consume and critique comics who are aware of this i don't see a lot of people praising when things are presented that way, like they focus on the art rather than the evocative moral of the story, 
And that's very derivative from our topic, but <laughs> that's why we're talking about it. So, uh, that's why. you know, like putting this out is very nice because with you processing and with me processing and us able to reflect off of each other, I can talk more to how particular situations are racist or like we can, we're much more effective at pulling up examples of that in a way that I think we can communicate it on and support the moral. Now, as white women, we are also aware of the fact that this isn't our conversation, but we also have the responsibility to challenge racism and promote anti-racism because we are members of the group that profits off of it, so. Right. Well, and I feel like this is us trying to push each other to learn or trying trying to help break through a little bit of that. And I've gotten so much better in just the year and a half, two years of us having these conversations at noticing, you know, and there's certain topics that I would have never been about, you know, like the fact that even whenever I was throwing out, trying to come up with the word gang member, uh, the fact that I even was like, gang member just doesn't sound like it's legit anymore, does it? And then, you know, like had a moment of self-reflection is because of all of the different, I feel, discussions that we've had here. And it's not like we're trying to educate so much as we're trying to like learn. And I feel like that's important Mm -hmm. that we acknowledge that. Hopefully it's just opening up discourse to more people and to ourselves most importantly because I feel like that's kind of what our point was when we started doing this whole thing was just so that we could talk to other people about it and have a safe space for us to to learn and to look and to be critical and also to just enjoy because I feel like I really enjoyed this and I would recommend you read it I know we did it this way because we wanted to kind of set up something different for the like the podcast artist spotlight you did the more I would consider the hard work of going through and trying to actually figure out like about the artist as a person and I got the relatively easy job of just doing what we always do which is read and be critical of whatever we read but you know (laughs) and I think that's important because I would have never known all of that about her and knowing that about her I definitely and those you know the situation surrounding her creating this graphic novel I learned more about how the graphic novel was good in different ways that I wouldn't yeah. have noticed before. I mean, I acknowledge, I mean, I benefited from it, but now I have a much more direct benefit from it, if yeah. that makes sense. And that's... So I like it. Yeah. But you should read it. Yeah. You should all read it. I, I totally have it downloaded on Hoopla already. So yeah. thank you all for coming today once again to the table to listen to a couple of girls talk some nerdy shit. This time it was an artist. Next time, who knows? Actually, next time we do know. Our next episode. So this was about a writer, not an artist. Mm. People draw that line. Uh, Our next episode is going to be about Pretty Deadly. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Me too. For now. Thank you for listening. If you like what we do here and want to hear more about maybe Pretty Deadly next time, you should totally look us up on Twitter or on Facebook or on any of the streaming places. We're on Google. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. You find us by Googling Girls Talk Comics. We are Girls Talk Comic 1 on Twitter specifically, and that is, I think, where Erin does the best job of sending out our Linktree page, which will take you to all of the different things, including our Ko-fi, if you like and would like to support by buying us a comic and helping us get better equipment for this little thing that we do. Also on our Ko-fi is a pretty fun uh, chance for people who are following our Twitter and have seen my lovely co-host Intentionally Bad Art to ask for a commission. Uh, there are some rules that you can find on that Kofi page, but if that's something that sounds interesting to you, you should totally look it up. I believe right now it's pretty low. One dollar. One dollar. <laughs> so you better get on that One before whole we decide. Dollar. She's worth way more than that, folks. So soon it might be two dollars. Who knows? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I got chills just now. Crazy. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Two dollars. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> thanks for coming, guys. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye. It, I can't use big words anymore because my brain doesn't work well enough to actually like get them to me in completion. So, um.